0: We are looking at a passage today. We, we, we've been working through John's gospel. Um, and, um, uh, and as uh, we've reached the passage today, that actually the setting for this is sort of like the, the first communion service. It's the last supper. And so let's dive straight into it. Uh, as we've just received communion, let's read about um, a passage which is set uh, around that time. John chapter 13, page 1081. Page 1081, John 13. So let's read it together. The words are going to come up on the screen. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel round his waist after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him he then came to Simon Peter who said to him lord are you going to wash my feet jesus replied you do not realize now what i am doing but later you will understand No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one was clean. But when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that inspires and corrects and encourage, encourages us. And we pray now that you would speak to all of us gathered here and those that are watching or listening online now or another time, Lord. We just pray that by your spirit, you would speak to our hearts and leave us transformed. Amen. So, today I want to talk to you about the benefits of reading this book. Not just this book, we don't have to share it, uh, the Bible in. General reading or studying our Bibles, how do we feel about it? Perhaps we don't know where to start, perhaps we've really struggled with it, perhaps we still really struggle with it. There are parts that are really complex, um, uh, and sometimes the idea of maybe studying it in a group we have connect groups, or maybe studying it with other people can also feel daunting, especially if you feel as if they know more about the Bible than you. You do. So uh, I- I've I've got like a set of questions which I love to use with small groups and we we tend to have a, a sort of rule where you're not allowed to mention other parts of the Bible because that automatically puts everyone on a sort of level pegging because even if this is the first time you've opened this book yeah everyone can read the passage in front of us and can and sort of uh, like ask simple questions of it this isn't sort of you know complex questions about historical contextual settings, it's a few simple questions that everyone can ask and everyone can apply to to their lives. And today, I want to ask three such questions of this passage. And as we ask three questions of this passage that everyone can answer... um, and they build for us a picture of why you and me and everyone needs their Bible, needs to get to know their Bible, needs to spend time with God and His Word. And the three questions we're going to ask together, and you can ask this of any passage of Scripture, you can ask this in any sort of study uh, group, is this What does this passage tell us about God? What does this passage tell us about ourselves? And what will I do differently as a result of reading this passage? What does this passage tell us about God? What does this passage tell us about myself, ourselves? And what will I do differently as a result of reading this passage? So, how do I apply it to my lives? And so, let's dive straight in with our first question What does this passage tell us about God? And for this, I want to move to the first third. I'm going to look at this passage in three chunks today. The first third of this passage. Let's, um, but actually, it's not just from the opening third or even from the opening verse. This theme is threaded throughout the whole of this passage. But it's put front and center in the opening verse. Let's read verse 1. Actually, the second half of verse 1. Jesus, we read this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. What is the purpose of this passage that we read here today? It is an acted out sort of parable in which Jesus wants to show us the full extent of his love for us. What does this passage tell us about God? He loves us. He wants us to know that he loves you. The words and actions of Jesus in this passage are meant to be understood through the lens of this opening verse that God in Jesus wants us to see the full extent of his love for us. So what does this passage tell us about God? It reveals that God loves you. He really does love you. He knows you. And yet, he loves you. And the question I want to ask is, well, what kind of love is this? And the passage sort of picks up for me that God's love is a kneeling love. It's a kneeling love. As we move into verse 3, we read a fascinating sentence. When I first read this, I thought, wow, I don't think I ever really noticed this sentence before. It says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so what do we have in this passage? Jesus knew that he had come from God. He knew he was turning to God. He knew that everything was under his power. And so he's in this position of supreme power. And what does he do? She'll tell you what I would do? I'd probably say, well, if this is me, if I've got all the power, if I'm the greatest not only in the room, I'm the greatest in the universe, I'd probably stand up and start issuing decrees. But no, look what Jesus does with his power and his authority. It doesn't even start a new sentence. There's a semicolon from the fact that he says he knows where he's come from, he knows where he's going, he knows that everything is under his power, and so, verse 4, so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and after he poured water into a basin, he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He was supreme power, and what does he do with that? He kneels before us in love. He takes the place of a servant. This is how he chooses to exercise his power. He does so in kneeling love, a love that bends the knee and does what is most needed for those around him. I mean, do we love like this, this self-sacrificial, serving, humble love And what I want to say is this kind of love stands in stark contrast to the kind of things that passes for love in today's society. Today's society, I'd like to say there's a counterfeit love out there. Because kneeling love says, I want to do what is best for you and your needs. But the world's counterfeit love says that I love you. I need you. I want to meet my needs through you. Counterfeit love is about what I can get off the person that I love, how my needs can be fulfilled, how will they fulfill my needs? Christ's love, God's love for you, is one that kneels before you and looks to do what you need, looks to make you the greatest that you can be. So what does this passage tell us about God? It reveals to us that God loves us with a kneeling, a self-sacrificial, a serving love. A love that does not stand uh, 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 aloof and afar from us, but a love that comes very close to us and kneels before us. And what I want to say is, is that this is my first point here, is that this is a revelation of who God is and this leads us to worship. This is a revelation of who God is. And if this captures our hearts, the kind of love that Christ has for you, it will lead us to worship. So that's our first question. Our second question is this. What does this passage tell us about ourselves? Well, for this, we need to look at the second sort of third of our passage. Let's uh, consider the exchange between Peter and Jesus from verse 6 to verse 11. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. I find that quite interesting. I'm going to step aside here. Uh, I mean, I just wonder if that is, uh, what what we have here is this juxtaposition, two words that Peter says that shouldn't really ever come together. It says in verse 8, no to Jesus, and in verse 9, Lord Jesus. To Jesus. Do we ever come to Jesus? We claim he's our Lord, but we say no to him. Maybe that's a word for, for, for one of us here. We need to say, if we say the word Lord, we need to say yes. Yes, Lord. Now, I think Peter's initial response uh, to Jesus is not too dissimilar to many people's, not just people in this room. I, I'm, I'm speaking about people across the world. Jesus goes to wash his feet, and Peter says no. No. You will never wash my feet. So Peter here is basically too proud to accept what Jesus is offering. He offers to kneel and to wash him clean, but but Peter says, no. But Peter and all of us needs to humbly acknowledge our need and what Jesus offers us. Peter's feet were dirty and, and uh, grimy from day on dusty roads. Um, I, I often do a dog walk up, uh, up the hill down the bottom of Cannon Court Lane. And uh, because it's been so dry recently, like my trainers and my socks have been covered in dirt and dust. And this is what their feet would have looked like. But they would have been wearing sandals, not trainers. Their feet would have been incredibly dusty and dirty. And they needed to be washed clean. And in this way... The washing that Jesus offers here is a parable, is a sort of image of His mission, the salvation that He offers every one of us. You see, today our our shoes may be, our feet may be protected by socks and shoes, but the truth remains that all of us need to be washed clean from our wrongdoings, from our sins. And some people refuse to acknowledge this need. They claim that their feet are clean enough. They don't need them to be clean. They do not think God needs to wash away any of their sins. In fact, many people find the, 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 the fact that the, 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 even the suggestion that God might need to forgive them, uh, that they are not able to make it on their own. They find this uh, offensive. That, that after all, they, they live a Christian life. What, why would Christ need to die for me? I don't need his forgiveness. I am okay. But it is only those who have not yet caught a glimpse of the holiness and the glory of God that cannot recognize their need and their, their shortcomings. They, they look up, in, these people look up in search for God. They think that God is aloof and out there, but they miss him. They miss him because God isn't up there aloof. He's kneeling at our feet and offering to wash us clean. Some people miss the necessity of salvation, our need to be washed clean. And this passage speaks not only of the necessity of salvation, it speaks of the the nature of salvation. As I've said, salvation is likened to washing in Scripture. But it is a washing in two stages. And the first stage is a washing of the complete body. It's taking a bath. Or as my kids would say, a bath. Yeah, um... In, in, the, in the first century Middle East, where this passage is set, when preparing to visit someone's house for an evening meal, the guests would first of all take a bath and uh, to wash away all of their dirt. It was just part of their customs. So to go to someone's house, you would have to take a bath. And then on the journey to their host's house, they would pick up this dust uh, on their feet, and so on arrival, all that they would need to do is they wouldn't need to take another bath. They would just need to have their feet washed. And this is what we read in this passage. Peter leaps from one extreme to another. He says, if Jesus needs to wash his feet, then surely he must wash his hands and his head and everything. And this reveals, the. but but Jesus gently corrects him. And he says that only his feet need to be washed. And this reveals the nature of, of salvation is a washing in two stages. The first stage is having a bath, the washing of the whole body. And this happens when someone becomes a Christian for the first time, when they choose to, to turn from sin and to turn to Christ, to take themselves off the, cent, off the throne of their life, and to put Jesus at the center. And you might have heard of, of complex words such as justification, which is the moment that you put your saving uh, you put your trust in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus. And from that point onwards, from that point onwards, you are accepted by God, you are adopted into his family, and you are considered righteous before him. That's what having a bath is. You know, it's sometimes called regeneration or or new birth. This inward transformation is dramatized by the washing of water through baptism. It's dramatized through the washing of water through baptism. And this is the first washing that we see in this passage. And Jesus says, if you've taken a bath, you don't need to have another one. If you've been baptized once, you don't need to be baptized again. That's why sometimes when people come up to front, when we do adult baptisms here, we do um, baptisms for those who haven't been baptised as, as children, but if they've been baptised as children, even if they've wandered far from the faith for the last 50 years, we don't rebaptize them because Jesus says you only need one bath. We reaffirm their baptism vows. They take the vows that their parents have made upon themselves and they reaffirm their baptism vows because Jesus said there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so this is the first washing. But what we do need, what every one of us needs, is a daily cleansing of our feet. And as we walk through life, we all pick up dirt and mud on our feet as we sin and we fail. And what we need is not another bath. What we need is is the daily forgiveness, the washing of our feet. And that's why we love the Lord's prayer. We say, "Forgive us of our sins." Says, we forgive those who sin against us. That's why before we come to confess, before we come to communion, every time we come to communion, we have that time where we can f- confess our sins and seek God's forgiveness to have our feet washed, daily washed. what we have here is an exchange between jesus and peter and and in this exchange we have a promise a promise of salvation and what we learn about ourselves is that we need to trust in this promise we need to trust in this promise we have a promise to trust that's our second point we have a promise to trust Now, I don't know if any of you have read the Christian classic Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. In it, Christian, who's who's the sort of main character, finds himself um, in the grounds of Doubting Castle with one of his friends. And the two of them are captured by a giant, and this giant's name is called Despair. And Despair captures them and locks them in his castle in the dungeon. And at night, the giant asks his wife uh, for advice about what he should do with Christian and his friends. And she tells them to go and beat them mercilessly. And so he beats Christian and his friends with many doubts. And many of you uh, are feel beaten by doubts and blows of doubts and by, by despair. The next night, they they survive that night. But the next night, the giant wife encourages the giant to provoke the prisoners into killing themselves. And so he leaves them the means to kill themselves, the giant called despair. He leaves them the means to kill themselves. And he tells them, you're never going to escape this dungeon. It's always going to be the same. You're never going to escape. Take the easy way out. But what happens the next evening, the, the, the despair, the giant called despair, visits the dun- dungeon and finds them alive, and he is furious. And this time, he goes to his wife, who tells them that he she, he needs to take the prisoners to um uh, he needs to take the prisoners to see the bones of the previous pilgrims that have wandered into his grounds, how he had torn them apart limb from limb to see the bones of previous pilgrims. And this he does. And after giving them another beating with blows of doubts and despair, he locks them away again. And so they're in a really difficult place. They're locked in this dungeon. And so what Christian and a friend decide to do is they decide to spend the night in prayer. And then just before morning breaks... Christian realises his mistake. All this time, he had a little key called promise hidden in his bosom. This key called promise could open any and every lock in Doubting Castle. And sure enough, taking the key, Christian and his friends open the door to their dungeon and open all the doors in the castle and escape altogether. And this giant called Despair tries to chase after them. But because of their trust, because of their faith, because they held on to the promise, he's unable to use his limbs and Christian and his friends escape forever and rejoin the highway of their pilgrimage. And my friends, you have a key in your bosom, called promise. And if you ever find yourself, or if you find yourself in Doubting Castle, use that key. The promises of God, which we find in this book, will open any and every door, no matter what dungeon you might feel you are in. We have a promise of salvation that requires our trust. A promise that requires our trust. And the third and final question this morning is, is what will I do differently as a result of reading this passage? How will this, how does this apply to my life? What will I do differently? And so we move into the final third of this passage, verses 12 to 17. Let's read it again. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. For that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Here, Jesus is plainly teaching us to follow his example, to love and to serve one another. The kneeling to love that Jesus shows to his followers is the same type of love that we're meant to show to one another. Verse 15, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. What What will I do differently? What will you do differently as a result of this passage? Well, we have a commandment that requires our obedience. We have a commandment that requires our obedience. We are to love and to serve others as Jesus has loved us. We are, we, we, what we need is we need to experience this love first and for, foremost. We need to live in Christ's love for us. And if we get this love, it will free us and inspire us to love others with the same quality of kneeling love. A love that does not seek to satisfy our own needs, but a love that seeks the eternal benefits of others. And so we've asked three questions of our passage today. What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about ourselves? And how will we live differently as a result of this passage? And we've seen three points. And the three points is this. In Scripture, we have a revelation of who God is, And this leads us to worship. We have a promise of salvation, and this leads us to trust and to faith. And we have a commandment that requires our obedience. And this is why each and every one of us needs this book. We need to love this book. We need to get into this book. For throughout the whole of Scripture, we find these three things again and again and again. Because from the first page to the last, we have a revelation after revelation of who God is. We, have, we see his character. And this leads us to worship. Sometimes we need to just put down our Bible and to spend time in worship. Sometimes we have revelations that lead us to worship. And other times we find promises. We find promises of salvation which calls us into trust and into faith. And we need faith. We need to trust Jesus, especially in the dark times. And we see commandments of God which require our obedience. And together, these three things will help us to grow in maturity as followers of Jesus. Because we need, not head knowledge, we need heart transformation. And it's only when we encounter God through this book that he grows us in maturity, He transforms us from the inside out. So let us make reading and studying our Bibles not a dry academic exercise, but instead let us approach the Bible with an expectation that God will speak to us. Not through complex, contextual things, but by asking simple questions. What are you saying to me through this passage? And as, you, and as you do, as God speaks and reveals himself and challenges you and encourages you, day after day, you will grow in maturity as a disciple of Jesus, as you learn more and more to worship, to trust, and to obey. Shall we stand? And we're going to pray.